Welcome to Helpful Social Work. Social work has the power to change people's lives for the better. This podcast aims to help you learn, think and act with integrity so people who need social work get help that transforms their lives. My name's Jo. And I'm Jerry. And this is our next podcast for Series 5, and it's around what makes a good social worker. It was recorded um, on the 23rd of the 10th, and it's going to go out in November. Every month, we're posting a podcast that looks at what makes a great social worker. When we started in April, we looked at the overall ingredients, and now we're breaking it down into each of the domains of the professional capabilities framework in England. We're looking at the practice domains. Last month was critical reflection and analysis, and this month is skills and intervention. After we've looked at skills and interventions, we'll look at the impact domains, professionalism, context and organisations, and professional leadership. Thank you for continuing to listen. We've had over 3,000 downloads in the last few months, um, each month, and it seems people are really getting to hear about the podcast. So I've got a few mentions. Um, thank you very much to Paul in Kentucky for telling us he's a huge fan. And he's a member of the National Association of Social Workers, of which I'm a huge fan. And Helen, Jessica, Julian, Lucy, War, Sarah, and Lind and Jane, who found us on Facebook. And um, there was a social worker and student in Sheffield who bumped into my friend recently and told her that they listened to the podcast, which was really lovely. And Greater Cambridgeshire Teaching Partnership and others who've shared us on Twitter. The other thing that we'd really like is if you can is if you go to iTunes to get the podcast, if you just put a star rating on there, that helps people to find us. Um, so do tell us what you think by letting us know on iTunes or by visiting our website, www.helpfulsocialwork.com or on our Facebook page, Helpful Social Work Podcast. So this episode, as Joe said, is about skills and interventions, and it does relate back to previous series that we've done. So we did a series on working with people through the life course, and we've also done a series on the journey through social work involvement that started with first contact and went right through to when we say goodbye to people. Um, so it is about direct practice and fits with the practice domains of the capabilities framework, but it's also absolutely um, tied to the ethical domains that we talked about earlier in this series and needs awareness of the context domains, the impact domains that we'll be looking ahead to next for the next three months. Yes, it all wraps together, doesn't it? And, and of course it does, because skills and intervention is at the heart of what we do. And we're going to start by um, looking at what the professional capabilities framework has to say about this domain. And as usual, there's different levels to the framework. And the one that we home in on is the experienced social worker. So practitioners who are experienced in their work. And this either gives us something to aim for or to support social work. And it really captures the essence of the domain. So... What does it say about skills and intervention? We need to use judgment, knowledge and authority to intervene with individuals, families and communities to promote independence, provide support, prevent harm and enable. It's really purposeful, isn't it? It is really purposeful. I was just thinking that. It's, it goes straight to the heart of what it is we do. And I love the fact that we promote independence first, provide support, prevent harm and enable the person, um, you know, and when we think about what it is that people want from us, I think that's it, that, that exactly, exactly encapsulates us, you know, and we do that by we work with individuals, families and communities, and we do spend the first bit of time trying to find out what their needs and wishes are 
and what actions or what interventions could actually be helpful. And that's the best place to start. And the, the domain goes on to talk about the fact that we're going to build productive working relationships. And I, I, I actually quite like um, that term, working relationships. I, I've talked in the past, I think, about um, how we use ourselves professionally in the relationship, so how we have a professional relationship. But a working relationship sounds much better to me because it sounds like something that's functioning and something that's done in partnership. You know, if something's working, you, you both both ends of it. Um, are working together. So they are working on the relationship and so are we. Um, and that requires us to have effective communication. It requires us to still bring our professionalism in in terms of our judgment to make sure that we use it, the interventions effectively. And I think in that partnership, people are hoping that we will be able to inform them as to the evidence base of what has worked for people in their situation. So actually, often they've come to the end of their own strategies and cope, and they really are wanting someone to come in and say, well, this is what we know helps people who have found themselves in similar situations to you. Not everything will help, and you might have some other ideas as well, but this is what our knowledge tells us. So it's a real meeting of the ex expert experience of the person who's living that life and our expert experience in terms of our knowledge and professionalism, you know, and we're bringing all of that to play when we are actually using our skills and intervening in people's lives. Yes, when you go into the, the list of the um, I statements with the domain, it picks up on all of those things and gives you quite a long list of things that that we need to be thinking about. So communication and engagement, um, being able to gather information and use assessment procedures and assessment frameworks, um, and being able to co-produce kind of um, solutions with people um, and work with people and communities and networks. Um, and then there's also quite a lot around role modeling, um, how we, I guess do that with children, families and adults, but also with other practitioners, um, because again, this is the experience social worker level. So we're we're not just thinking about our own practice, but we're also thinking about our influence around around us and about power. Um, and the power element, again, is about knowing our own power, but sharing that power back. And that harks back to this, this description, doesn't it, um, which talks about power differentials. So within the um, within the domain, there's really a lot going on. There's working with people, um, engaging and communicating. There's there's the kind of assessment and judgment that we make, but there's also how we think about power within that. Um, and the final bit is about um, evaluating our practice and its impact and the, the outcomes that we achieve. Yeah, I think this is um this is a really helpful framework for us. And as you were talking then, Jerry, my mind was kind of going to that kind of journey of intervention and thinking about, well, how do we do that? And for me, that building the relationship is really key. And we talk about the fact that we need time to build relationship and I and I agree that we do. But I've had an interesting experience myself late. Um, where I've actually been engaging with services and they're engaging with services more and more on behalf of someone else. Um, and what I've found is that you can build a relationship very quickly, actually, when somebody wants help and support. 
So if someone's looking for help and support, they're also looking for particular characteristics from the helper um, around warmth, warmth, around promptness of reply, around interest and focus, around showing that they listen well by reflecting the story that you've told back to them. Um, and so I think that you can build a good working relationship quite quickly, actually, just by using the kind of um, relational aspects of respect and friendliness and connectivity. So a real interest and curiosity in the other person and offering them their respect. And then I thought about gathering information. And one of the things that I've realized now is that actually people don't always know what's important or what to tell us. So it's not always that they don't tell us things or that they can't tell us things or they won't tell us things, but sometimes they don't know what to tell us. So one of the things that I've been thinking about lately is how we let people know the areas that it will be helpful for us to explore right at the start. Not shutting people down and not being so prescriptive that we're just firing questions at them. But so we say, in my role, these are the types of information that can be helpful to me. So if I'm thinking about this kind of issue that you've brought, Jerry, then some of the things I'll be curious about will be So you're following. giving me sort of cues, but also space to say, yeah. oh, I think this might, might matter. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So that you're helping frame, because, because, you know, your head is full of everything if you're in a space where you need help. And being able to package that into some kind of coherent response to people can be really hard to do. So if someone's putting a nice frame around, these are the types of information and the types of things I think about when I'm trying to understand what's happening for you, I think that can be really helpful. And then that makes making a judgment much more transparent as well, of course, because if you are then, if you've talked to people about the types of information that you attend to and why, and then they've told you what they're thinking about, and then you've asked them some questions, you've got a conversation where you can then go move into the, okay, well, given the kind of things that I told you I was looking for, what are you thinking about? This is what I'm thinking about, and this is why I'm thinking about it. And so once again, there's this idea in intervention, isn't it, that you're sharing as much knowledge as you can in a way that's graspable so that you're empowering someone to really understand that journey with you. You're not just kind of taking, raking information from them, weighing it, and then making a judgment you're actually doing that in that kind of collaborative working relationship. And then, of course, it comes down to the actions, which is all about, okay, so we've thought about these things. What do you think will be most helpful? Here are some of the things that I know will be helpful. Which of those do you think you could do? And how can we make an agreement together that's going to actually make some difference and how will we know when we've made enough difference. And you talked about review. And for me, that's critical in intervention, isn't it? How do we know what it is we're doing is actually valuable? Is the right activity enough of the right activity at the right time and is making enough difference? And when 
do we agree that we'll stop trying this and do something else if there's not enough difference? Because I think that's the other thing for me. If you're the person wanting the help, you want to know when to expect the help to work. And so there's something there about talking about time frames as well. And um, that then if we work that all together, then that helps us have a nice evidence-based approach, which involves our theory and our practice wisdom, the other person and their lived experience in a partnership. And it helps us work out what's most likely to be helpful and to actually put something in place that's meaningful. Yeah, so I went, um, I had a look as well at the um, the roots of the word skills and intervention. And we do use them a lot in social work. And um, skill actually comes from a root word meaning difference and intervention from the root words of coming between. And mm. these both have a sense of kind of altering a course. So if you think of it as a journey, somebody might be on a particular path and or a bit lost or kind of slightly um, kind of wandering. And then you come along and find a different course or find a different come come between um have alter the course um and so it's a really huge thing isn't it um the impact yeah, of that found. Yeah. so how we go about it is absolutely you know it's absolutely crucial that we think about the ethics of it and so there's some some really kind of important principles about essentially meddling in someone's life um, so it has to be co-produced. There's that wonderful phrase, and then nothing about us without us. We have to be really, really transparent about what we're doing and why. And we've got to have a reasonable chance of making things better. Mm -hmm. um, and what that's described as from the curriculum guide that um, goes alongside these domains, um, which was set out actually by the College of Social Work initially, but it's now held by BASWA. It says that we have to have a clear rationale for what we do based on theory, research and assessment. And that the way that we figure out the rationale is through skills of observation and assessment, using analysis and understanding the situation and developing hypotheses about potential outcomes. We're then able to select an intervention method that's likely to achieve the desired outcomes. And then we implement that again through relational skills and communication um, and keep critically reflecting and analysing to see whether it's effective. So it's quite a it's a very thoughtful and ethical process, isn't it? It is, and it, and it has to be because, as you said, you know, if you think about this as coming in between, a person has one trajectory they're on, and we're coming in between that and and helping them find another trajectory, then that is work that is profound, um, and we and 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 that is necessary because some people's trajectories are are, are very distressing for them and distressing for others around them. And I think for me, making sure that we know what the theories are and what the methods are we're using and why we're using them. I mean, we've touched upon a lot of um, theories and methods in our podcast. You know, we've talked about relationship-based social work, and I think that's where, where I started off here, talking about the fact that it needs to be a working relationship um, and that the relationship needs to be at the heart of what we do. And that is about, you know, respecting each other, about being curious with each other, about understanding the person in their own context and understanding all of the relationships and all of the supports they have around them 
It's really attending to then connectivity, really, and making sure that you um, don't disrupt it and that you continue to build it and support that person. I mean, we talk a lot about anti-discriminatory and anti-oppressive theory and practice, and I think that's just a, a bedrock. I mean, you talked about the do no harm idea, and I think for me it has to go further than that. It has to be an undo harm that is being done particularly around systems that are oppressing or discriminating against people. Um, this, for me, the systems theory, well, we're all knitted in together and um, whatever happens on this earth happens, sends ripples across the earth, even, for, even from an individual approach. So really thinking about who is in this person's circle, who is in this person's community, who is in this person's society, um, and how can those resources and people be pulled together? For me, though, I think um, when you're thinking about individual approaches and in particular paying attention to attachment or um, to family therapy, you're really wanting to ensure that whoever the person has around them are the people who matter to them and the people that are going to be there in the long term. And there's also um, work around improving people's experiences, so trauma-informed practice, and of course, crisis intervention, which we use a lot in the moment when everything feels too difficult and overwhelming for the individuals we're working with, finding a way to contain them and keep them safe and make them available to start thinking about the differences that they'd like. So there's there's a lot of theories out there and we're not going to describe them all, but I think for me, the critical thing is that you absolutely have to have some driver, something that informs the intervention that you're doing. And so, for example, if you're wanting to work with, say, um, a young child in a foster care placement that's finding it really hard to settle, then for me, using the secure base work would be really helpful there because you could actually start to ask yourself, well, who is it that this child identifies with or that they think they belong to? You know, where is this child getting their sense of self from? Where are they getting their sense of security from? Where are they getting their sense of fun from? Who's providing these things for them? And how can we work together to build a secure base for this child where they know who they are, they know who's who's in their corner really, and they know um, what's expected of them so they have some some sense of self there. Yeah, I think one of the things that does set social workers apart from other people who do assessments or do safeguarding um, is that we have a theoretical and practice basis. That's that's why we do this qualification and the continuing professional development, so that we have this kind of theory and evidence behind how we do things and why we do them. And that allows us to explain to children and families and adults what lies behind the processes. So we're not following a process, we're um, we're practicing and um, one of the things I think that doesn't get talked about enough is about the therapeutic element of social work um, and again I looked up therapeutic it means having or exhibiting healing powers um, and so that makes me think about how we're not kind of going through the motions and following a process we're helping people mm. to change course for the better mm. um, some, in some way that somehow heals them or helps them have more integrity or more wholeness um, and that we only do this if they either want it or it's in their genuine best interests and they're not able to decide for themselves. So 
what's for the better, what's healing or what's in people's best interests always relates back to their own view, what matters to them and what ultimately will help them to thrive. Mm. Um, so I was thinking about examples, for example, around um, adults who um, collect lots of things, who, who struggle to manage their home and belongings so that that is then identified as a risk to them or to their own self-care or to others around them. And the way that you would intervene there is very therapeutic. It's through relationship-based social work. It's through understanding the person's history and life course, understanding maybe what trauma they've experienced or what oppression they might have experienced. So using some of those um, theories and approaches that you talked about. It's also in a very strength-based way, um, helping them to understand why it's important to them and what matters to them and what it is that that, um, that behaviour is um is helping them with you know um, and and seeing actually how that might then be replaced by other ways of living so they could hold on to what matters to them um whilst looking after their home and their possessions in a different sort of way so a lot comes into it yeah and this is very empowering isn't it jerry because you're handing people over the power to take charge of their own lives um and allowing them to think together with you about what the issues and the risks are, both for them and for others, and then helping them find ways to keep things that matter and let go of things that don't. Because I think one of the things with the example you've given, which is lovely, is sometimes people are in danger of – that they, they can't keep everything, can they? And so they're in danger of losing other people or losing homes or losing other things that matter to them um, whilst they've got this kind of loss of loss of stuff as well. So um, I think helping them sort and sift through what are the things that matter to you. And I was asked um, a lovely question the other day, which I thought was so helpful. And it was, what is it that you would want to keep in your life? not things that you might want to change a bit or improve or things that you want to be different or anything with any doubt. What are the things that you know absolutely clearly that you want to keep in your life? Right from the smallest things through to the really big things. That really so harks back to those motivational interviewing kind of questions, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, but it's such a lovely question because it helps people then think about, okay, um, if, if I, these are the things that really matter to me that I, I would never want to change, then how do I take charge of my life to keep those things in there? And how do I improve my life to take advantage of them? Because often that's the other thing. Sometimes we're spending so much time maintaining those things, we don't have any time to enjoy them. And so we're helping people then step into, okay, well, what's what's getting in the way of you taking advantage of that fully or what's the risk to you not having that thing in the future? And, and that does really help people start to take charge of their own life and it appreciates you as an expert in your own life. So I think, yeah, that motivational interviewing is a really good theory for helping people develop their own expertise and find find their solutions. And one of the really critical things about this, particularly in, in children's services, although I, I do believe that this is improving and improving over time, 
we often have statutory powers and we're coming into people's lives with agendas. We've talked about this many times and the interventions are being driven by the necessity of safety or by the necessity of self-care or something else is informing some some societal um, or legislative imperative is informing the interventions. And we need to be crystal clear when we're working with people relationally what the beginning and end of the power is. So how much power they have and how much power we have and how we're going to work together to manage that. And I think we we once again, we've talked about this many times, the idea of using our power cleanly and you use your power cleanly when you acknowledge it properly and you tell people exactly how much power you have and what kind of things you can and can't do. And I always think that's a really important first conversation in interventions. And it's about making sure that you have it in a way that doesn't end up like a, if you don't, if you don't, you need to know we will, because that is not an empowering conversation and it's not a clean use of power. It's a kind of a, a, a really threatening conversation. Yeah, so you have to sort through, don't you, the, the statutory role you might have or the powers you might have, the expertise that you have which mm. is bringing all of the things we've talked about all the therapeutic elements to it um, and 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 also then what the person themselves brings to it um, so how you can where you can or where you can't enhance the person's power what power they have to the situation as well mm. and you have to um, understand structural power in all of that too don't you because people hear these conversations very differently depending on how how much power they have in their own life. So if you've lived a life where everywhere you've gone, you've been accepted, where everything you've wanted to do, you've pretty much been able to access. Well, there might be some difficulties around money or, or qualifications or something, but you've actually been able to access things very well. Um, you will have a really different understanding of the type of personal power you can have as opposed to people who have faced many erosions to their personal power within structures. And I was thinking particularly there's just been a report coming up about the Roma community and the traveller community, hasn't there, um, around the types of inequality that they face all the time. And so if you come with all that power at your back, to talk to some people and you try to tell them that you're going to share power with them or that you're going to want to hear from them or those kind of things, you really have to try and understand what the system looks like from their point of view because it still might look really unfair and really overwhelming. Yeah. So our kind of intervention is an opportunity to uphold our ethics. So the ethic of professional integrity we've just been talking about, isn't it, which is kind of at the heart of that is the transparency about what a social worker is what social work does um, and, and the system that we work within uh, and we also have these ethics of promoting rights and promoting social justice and within these kind of encounters that we have we're able to understand if we if we take the time we're able to understand how that person is able to exercise their rights but also what what the context looks like to them in terms of justice how just it is how equal it is um, 
how fair it is and the and sort of understand the barriers and enablers that people have and that are around them as well and make judgments that aren't just about a quick fix or a you know um a kind of signposting or just a you know there you go kind of thing but actually it would have more lasting impact because they can um they can address some of those rights and justice issues mm. um, and i think that's where there's so much potential and there's also can be quite a lot of frustration kind of if we don't find that we've got the time and the opportunity to do that but we've got this um this wonderful ethical imperative of, uphold, of upholding the dignity and worth of each individual and that's really i think where the skills and expertise of social workers lie so if we're if we're able to think about everything that we do in terms of that um, and try to not just do the immediate thing, but to kind of think about the depth and breadth of what it would be like to uphold someone's mm -hmm. dignity um, and use that also as a way of, of thinking about the impact of our work. You know, has it helped this person in the moment, but also for the future, uphold their dignity? And I think that's a lovely question to bring into anything, because uh, I think for a lot of people, when they're intervening, the question they're asking is, has this reduced the risk? Has this kept the person safe? And that's not the same question at all, actually. Um, and, you know, can we help contribute to this person's safety whilst upholding their dignity is, is an interesting way for us to be thinking about it because it makes us think much more holistically about the person, doesn't it? Because if you've got to think about a person's dignity, you've got to think about what it is that contributes to their dignity. So you're really thinking about their sense of self and their self-efficacy and their identity and how they think other people see them, how they want other people to see them um, and how they see themselves. So there's a whole range of quite complex things that go into making up somebody's dignity. And if you push that together with the idea of safety, which is, like I said, certainly in children's services is nearly always some oppressing agenda, then you get much more of a chance to focus on the individual rather than on their issues and problems. And that's one of the things with interventions is we often, we often stop once we've solved the problem. So we've solved the on top problem, so we stop or we've contained the risk. But what we don't do is think enough about the repair and the restoration of the person. So, you know, the, the wholeness of the person, again, to go off and live a life that they value that doesn't involve. Yeah, that's where um, models like strength-based approaches and um, family group conferencing and um, those kind of balanced approaches to risk and safety are much mm. more therapeutic they're much more about people's dignity and identity and they're much they they would appear to be to have more longevity you know, the thing that you do is more likely to to keep working um, and i love the fact that we've talked jerry about therapy and social workers having a therapeutic role in intervention i think that's completely critical. I think that there was a time when we saw social workers as being case managers. And I think that that was a real curtailing of all of our skills and creativity and impact that we can have. 
you know, but if you're using social work to its, if you're using social work skills to their fullest degree, um, then you can really bring in a whole range of, of um, tools and approaches that actually make a difference to the person for, for their life. So we can start to build up skills in another person. Skills transfer, I think, is a huge thing in in social work it's not enough for us to be able to understand what resilience is and think about you know those seven different behaviors that we can learn around around um, resilience we can actually help other people think about those as well um, we can know what motivational interviewing is but it's more important if we can actually help the other person understand how to motivate themselves and understand how to do some self-talk when they get into dark places that actually steps them out of those places into somewhere else. If we can help them have healthy conversations with their family that are actually productive and lay down some of those conflicts because we've helped them understand what the different, um, the way they've used language and perhaps the way that they've entered into conflict with each other has, hasn't been helpful for them. If we can help them understand all of that, using the tools so if we can help them use the tools for themselves we can make huge difference to the way they go on through their life journey yeah so it is really important isn't it that again tools like the approaches that we use aren't things that are done to people but are done with people so they can really understand and then use them themselves and I think that that's that's something that is increasing again isn't it that there's much more transparency and joint you know, co-production of Mm. Um, the work as well. Well, we want people to gain, you want people to gain more and more knowledge and skills for themselves because life's a bumpy road. And yes, they're, they're in a pothole at the moment and we can, we can be there to support them and help them find ways to get out of that. But there'll be more potholes. There's potholes for us, you know, so the more, the more skills that we can have to cope with things, the more we can take on, the, the less and less we need. And it's not, and particularly for children and families, it's not so much that we never want to see them again. We we want to be as helpful as we can for as long as people need, but we want them to have more coping. You want to add to people's coping, don't you? You want to contribute to their skill building and their resilience and their resources each time you have an intervention with them so that they're building up and up and up um, and finding different ways to manage. So we have a couple of reflective questions. Uh, the first one is about expertise. So how we exchange, how do I exchange expertise with people who are also experts in their own lives rather than imposing my expertise on people? And the second one is about power. So it's um, how do I use the power I have to uphold people's dignity 